Um, so welcome to the first of the plenary term All Souls seminars. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, uh, Professor Fergus McNeil, who's come down all the way from Glasgow to talk to us about his new book, Pervasive Punishment. Fergus is Professor of Criminology and Social Work at the University of Glasgow, where he works in the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research and in Sociology. He's well known for his work on desistance and on non-custodial forms of punishment. The main focus of his talk today is going to be on the lived experience of supervision, as revealed through conventional ethnographies and in his own recent work in which he uses creative methods to explore and represent what it is and what it feels like to be supervised. Well, thank you uh, very much for the invitation. When you said seminar, I imagined a dozen, um, (laughs) maybe 15 people for a cosy chat, which would be very informal, and now it feels like a public lecture, uh, so no pressure. Um, You also reminded me when you read out that part from the abstract that I've totally forgotten to include the bit about contemporary ethnographies of supervision, but I'll just wing it, it'll be fine. Okay, I am going to talk to you uh, about the book, um, Pervasive Punishment, Making Sense of Mass Supervision, which uh, was published just in November. Um, I'm not going to tell you... Well, actually, I am. In in two PowerPoint slides, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the whole argument, which commercially makes no sense, because then you'll have no need to buy the book. But it provides some context for for, uh, homing in specifically today on... Uh, the lived experience as uh, represented and revealed through some less conventional research methods, particularly using uh, creative approaches. Um, The use of those methods, as I will say towards the end, isn't just about um, discovery uh, or inquiry or the generation of new knowledge. It already has in mind the way that we're going to use the knowledge that we generate through those approaches. Um, and I'll try to demonstrate at the end why I think one of the strengths of creative, met- creative methods is that they offer us something in relation to public engagement around uh, our topics of study. And that's particularly important to me in this project because a central argument of the book and a central concern of my work for the last 20-odd years is that supervision isn't visible uh, or isn't sufficiently visible. It's, it's barely visible in the academy. So in among those of us who study punishment in society, um, as Gwen Robinson puts it, this is very much the Cinderella of that field, a neglected uh, but important uh, feature uh, of the penal system, and one which really uh, deserves and requires our scholarly attention but hasn't been getting it. And, and Gwen goes into this in some detail in her work. I'm not going to explain all of that today. Uh, but she kind of raises the question, how come Stan Cohen surfaced all of these issues in relation to um, the, the role of community in, in punishment and surveillance in visions of social control in the mid-1980s? And then we lost it again. We lost sight of that as a central concern in punishment and society. Um, and you'll have to read Gwen's article to, to find her answer to that question. But it's linked to a second concern for me, which is that this is invisible in the public domain. Uh, the research that we have about public attitudes, public understanding of supervisory forms of punishment suggests either ignorance or apathy or cynicism. 
or a combination of all three. And the, the HAPA reference here is to a, a, a pilot study I was involved with a year or two ago where we looked at audience reception of media reporting about community-based forms of punishment um, and found one of our central findings was that those forms of punishment failed to communicate moral censure. At least that was the view of the people who were absorbing or responding to that media. So there's something going on in relation to uh, public failure to grasp what's involved in these forms of punishment. And that failure to see uh, has impacts. It has social impacts and systemic impacts uh, in relation to penal expansion, which I will demonstrate shortly. Um, And it has personal impacts in that it leads to uh, a misunderstanding or a failure even to care about very significant experiences of those subject to punishment, which I'm going to try to articulate. Um, And fundamentally, linking to debates about public criminology, if we can't imagine this form of punishment, literally can't imagine it, then how are we to debate its fairness or its utility? Um, And I'll give you an example an Oxford example, um, to kind of drive this point home. So this is Lavinia Woodward, and this was a very significant case uh, a year or two ago. In fact, just when I was writing the beginning of the book, uh, Lavinia Woodward had returned to court to be sentenced in relation to uh, an assault. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the English legal terms, but she had stabbed her boyfriend, causing uh, uh, injury, significant injury, wounding, Um, and she was initially sentence was uh, deferred or the case was continued, um, and that that caused enough controversy, but then when she finally came back to be sentenced, she she received a suspended sentence order. Um, I should have asked at the beginning who you are and what you study and what level of understanding or interest you have in community sanctions because I don't really know how much to explain about a suspended sentence order. It's a form of supervisory punishment. Um, It's fascinating that the reporting of that case didn't tell us what the conditions of the suspension were. So we don't know really what happened to Lavinia Woodward. All that the reporting did really, and the Telegraph was a good example, is say that she escaped punishment and that she walked free from court, neither of which is true. Um, And I was thinking about that, and this is an extract from the introduction, and and, and sort of trying to kind of crystallise my thought about this problem of visibility, and it occurred to me that if I asked people in general, um, what do you think it means to Lavinia Woodward to be on a suspended sentence order right now at... 3.37 on a Tuesday afternoon in January what do you imagine? What happens in your head? Close your eyes, imagine it and I think the usual answer I get when I ask the question is nothing nothing comes to mind very much maybe a meeting in an anonymous office with somebody who looks faintly professional Um, some people go a little bit further and think about whether there might be some treatment condition in relation to substance issues or mental health so there could be some aspect related to that but it's, it's very hard to summon up an imagining of what an SSO is or means to a person in a given moment whereas if she'd gone to prison and I asked you the same question she's in jail at 3.35 on a Monday what do you think happens in jail what do you think she's experiencing you'd probably if you know much about prisons think that she's not far away from getting her dinner 
because dinner served very early in prisons. She might still be finishing a work detail or doing some specific duties uh, or th- in an education class, but that will be finishing soon so that she can return to the landing. And all of those things have an architecture that feeds our imagination so we can rightly or wrongly, accurately or inaccurately, we know what we think we know, what we're talking about and what we're debating when we discuss imprisonment, but not in the case of supervision. I'll come back to the questions of imagining and the problems of imagining later. So what do I mean by mass supervision? Well, mass is a metaphor or a word with uh, a range of potential metaphorical connotations. Uh, And as with mass incarceration or mass imprisonment, we can think of that simply in relation to scale or volume, and that's the kind of go-to connection that we make when we hear the phrase. But um, it also speaks to questions of social distribution or concentration. So which which populations are being considered problematic and managed in particular ways? Uh, And that can involve processes of aggregation. Um, There's lots that we could talk about here in relation to the new penology, but the processing of groups who share certain characteristics or who are constructed as sharing certain characteristics through particular systemic practices. So they are the masses that are being processed in mass incarceration or mass supervision. We can also think about mass, we can spin it differently and think about the weight or penal burden of being supervised. Ben Cruz's work on depth, weight and tightness in relation to imprisonment is something that uh, I I tried to use in the book a little bit. Um, And we can also think about the way in which supervision constructs its subjects, which links to this process of individualization. So if you don't know that concept, it's, it's different from individualization, which is about recognizing people in their human complexity. The visualization sorts people according to certain characteristics, classically in relation to risk assessment in the criminal justice system. But uh, there are other versions in other systems. Okay, here's the two slides where I gave you the whole story. Um, So, pervasive punishment. Um, Punishment pervades in two ways that that we fail to notice or fail to see. It pervades socially in supervision in the community. So it's out there all around us at a scale that we don't understand or recognize. And I'll give you this scale in a moment. But it's also pervasive in the lives of those subject to it in ways that we don't see or recognize. Um, And if we look at this historically, the forms of supervision that are applied today are in many respects more intensive, more invasive, more intrusive than they were in earlier eras. And some of that will be revealed as I go through the lived experience. The second chapter does a kind of conventional punishment in society sweep up of accounts of penal change. How are we to understand penal change? We need that theoretical or conceptual understanding to kind of figure out where mass supervision has come from and why it's emerged in the forms that it has. So that chapter reflects on the broad social changes uh, that are often discussed by punishment and society scholars, but it also delves down into reconfigurations of the penal state and contestation or struggle in the penal field. So I, I think of that as the distal causes of penal change, the big, broad social currents that shift practices and systems and discourses of punishment and then the sort of intermediate level of more uh, proximate influences 
uh, which I, in, in, the, in the way that a state is configured and in the particular constitutional dynamics in different places that have a bearing on how social pressures come to be uh, interpreted and uh, have their effects in different places. But also, crucially important to me, is the local contestation of criminal justice. I'll come back to that point in a moment, but you have to study this process of penal change all the way down, right to the coalface, as it were, of penal practice and of penal experience. So the lived experience also tells us something when we use it to look back up through the layers of accounting for how punishment changes. So that's chapter two. Chapter three is all about the numbers. I'm not going to give you a lot of numbers today, but I am going to give you a couple of slides with some graphs because I feel obliged to before I go all flaky and creative. So you will get some numbers in a moment. Um, The takeaway message from that analysis, uh, I focus on uh, Scotland, uh, obviously a jurisdiction I know well, and the USA, because there's very good work there, Uh, using quantitative methods. Uh, I also uh, look uh, at the European level and I'll give you a little bit of data from each of those three contexts. In many Western jurisdictions, the ratio of people subject to supervision to people incarcerated is about 3 to 1. That's right in Scotland, it's about right in England and it's almost right in America. And it has been that way for a few decades now. In all three of those jurisdictions, there's been simultaneous growth of incarceration and supervision, um, which is a very important point. However, the social distribution of supervision is not even. It's concentrated in marginalised communities on the receiving end of social inequalities. There are slight differences in the way in which it's concentrated. Supervision is slightly... The the population supervised is slightly less marginalised than the population in prison uh, but it depends on the form of supervision so the parole population is closer to the prison population obviously than the probation population I'm conscious that I'm not defining my terms as I go through so if anybody needs clarification of the differences between probation and parole or anything else just interrupt me please chapter 4 Um, Trying to understand this process of penal change looks at the way in which supervision has been legitimated in different ways, in different places, at different stages in its evolution. Um, And I link that to penal narratives around managerialisation, punitiveness, rehabilitation and reparation. And I go back to the case study of Scotland uh, to show that reductionism, this is paradoxical, penal reductionism, a commitment, a formal commitment to reducing the prison population uh, and... Uh, 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 a commitment to try to retain a welfarist approach in the penal system, quite often celebrated in England when you look north actually those have been complicit in penal expansion in Scotland Um, to cut to the chase on that point because we haven't recognised that supervision is punishment and that it hurts, we've been incredibly careless about its expansion And it hasn't diverted people from imprisonment. So what we've done is hugely proliferated the the total population subject to penal control in Scotland at the same time as talking about reduction and welfare. Then I'll come on to the experience of mass supervision. I'll I'll pass that quickly now because we're going to major on that in a moment. Um, The last two chapters are different. Uh, So I stop analysing and start problem-solving at the end of the book. And the first of those two chapters 
chapter 6 is about how to make this visible in a way which is constructive what kinds of processes of dialogue and deliberation might criminologists in particular have a role in uh, enabling and how would we do that through counter-visual, sensory and public criminologies, more of which later and then finally I get normative um, and uh, look at the potential futures of supervision, different ways that it could go and try to develop some principles that might guide us towards what I would regard as an appropriately um, constituted and restrained future for supervision. There are three unusual features of the book. There's a short story. Every chapter begins with an extract from a short story which unfolds. I'm going to read you the first chapter, which is very short in a moment to give you an illustration and then I'll briefly tell you a bit about how the plot develops and who the key characters are there's a lot of pictures in the book that come from uh, using visual methods to explore the lived experience both of supervisors and of supervisees and there's some music in the book uh, where uh, songwriting processes have been used to explore different aspects of the experience so here's episode one I'm feeling awkward too. Uh, trust me. Actually, before you say, can I just ask whether we need lights on? It's getting quite dark. If so, can we have a question? Yeah. So, the the term supervision gets uh, confusing when you talk to Americans. So, if, if you talk to Americans about populations under correctional supervision, they include everybody in prisons, parole, probation, and jail. So they think of supervision as the, 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 total correctional, uh, the total correctional population. In the European context, when we talk of mass supervision, we don't mean people incarcerated, either in jails or prisons. Um, so we're talking about uh, either front-door community sanctions, which is where uh, a court-imposed measure or sanction is applied, as in classically probation or community service, or back-door community sanctions, which includes early release arrangements that involve supervision like parole. So it's both probation and parole, but it also extends to what we would once have called community service and nowadays also to electronic monitoring. Um, So any form of penal disposal um, imposed by a a court or a quasi-judicial body in relation to the release of somebody which involves community-based supervision of that person that's the best I can do. It's quite hard. It's like, that's one of the points that, that Gwen raises. It's uh, compared with imprisonment, supervision is really hard to define in way that in ways that travel across jurisdictions and systems adequately. But that'll do for now. Okay. So prepare your imaginations. I've got to kind of switch mode here from academic to something else. So Joe sat on the bench in the waiting room. Looking down, he noticed that the bench was screwed to the floor. Not even the furniture here was free. Perspex screens and locked doors separated him and the others waiting from those for whom they waited. The veils between the untrustworthy and those to whom they were entrusted. Joe absentmindedly read the graffiti carved into the bench, testimonies of resistance that made the place feel even more desperate. He scanned the postered walls, shouting their messages in pastel shades and bold print. Problems with drugs, problems with alcohol, problems with anger, stay calm. Apparently help was at hand or at the end of a phone line. 
But meanwhile, remember that abusive language and aggressive behaviour will not be tolerated. Not in this room, that itself felt like an installation of abuse and aggression. To Joe it said, you are pathetic, desperate or dangerous. You're not to be trusted. You must wait. He fidgeted and returned his eyes to the floor, downcast by the weight of the room's assault, avoiding contact, avoiding hassle, staying as unknown as possible in this shame pit. Better to be out of place here than to belong. This was no place to make connections. Joe wondered what she would be like, Pauline, the unknown woman who now held the keys to his freedom. Her word had become his law. This was an order, after all. He was to be the rule keeper, she the ruler, cruel, capricious or kind. She might hold the leash lightly, or she might drag him to heel. Instinctively, he lifted his hand to his neck, but no one can loosen an invisible collar. At least it was not a noose. Joe swallowed uncomfortably, noticing the dryness of his mouth and the churning in his gut. He was not condemned to hang, he was condemned to be left hanging. Joe wondered what Pauline would be like. That's episode one. Now, I'm not going to say very much about the writing of the fiction today, but I, I consider it sociological fiction, so it's a representation of research findings. Um, I, I could reference materials that have generated the ideas that are represented fictionally, but it's not describing any research participants' experiences directly. This is a picture which was part of what stimulated my imagination. This is a real probation waiting room. I'm not exactly sure where it's from, uh, but it was part of the Picturing Probation Project, uh, which I'll say a little bit more about later. Okay, so here are the numbers, in brief. Michelle Phelps is the uh, American scholar who's done most to try to understand what's going on over there in relation to mass probation, which is her principal focus. So here you've got the number of probationers, and she's indexed this growth by the crime rate. So this is the number of probationers per 10 index crimes. It's that dotted line. And this is from 1980 to 2010. Uh, this is the number of prisoners. So that's the, the mass incarceration line. Um, and that's the ratio of probationers to prisoners, which moves uh, at its high point quite early in the growth of both. It's uh, four to one. Um, and by by the end, in fact, for most of the sort of mid-90s to 2010, it's, it's around the three-to-one figure that I, that I mentioned before. Um, and this doesn't include uh, parolees, uh, which is another significant population in the, in the American context, dif counted differently. Here's Scotland, and this is not indexed. I was too lazy to index this by crime rates. I do know the numbers, though. Um, I'll, I'll tell you those. But this is just, it gives you the crime rate, which is that... Uh, black dotted line. This is the prison population growth and this is the growth in the supervision numbers. Um, and obviously you can see that they both grow together. Uh, at, the, in, at 1980 we have uh, just over about 2,500 people subject to supervision about um, <coughs> 5,000 in prison. So a population, total population of less than 8,000. Today uh, 30,000 if you put the two together, 8,000 in prison, roughly uh, 22,000 under supervision in the community. Um, if, if you want to index it by crime, there are 10 times as many community disposals today in Scotland as there were in 1980. 
and our government is still promoting community disposals as the way to reduce the prison population. Okay. This is Europe, and it, there's far too much detail. You don't have to look at this in any depth. It's just different countries. The light colour is the prison population. The dark colour is the population subject to supervision. Now, these come with a big health warning. It's very hard to do European-level statistical analysis of this sort because of all those problems of definition. But what you see is an uneven and jaggy line here with different relationships. So some countries, Georgia is an outlier with a huge prison population and a huge probation population. Uh, at the other end, Finland is very small on both. You get some examples, like England, high on both, uh, certainly by Western European standards. Scotland would be about the same. Not, not very different, really, once you kind of take into account population size. And all these uh, are adjusted for that, I think. Uh, but then if you go through here, you get interesting differences. You get small prison populations with small supervision populations. You get big supervision populations with small prison populations. It's all over the place, is the point. And it's, this, it's in America, in the USA, Michelle's done fantastic work. I'm not going to show you her data once she looks at state-level variation across the 50 states of the USA, but I'll give you her conclusion, which is the really important one for people who are interested in punishment in society. Comparative research that's reliant on imprisonment rates fundamentally misconstrues state variation in punishment. If you don't look at supervision, you're not understanding what's going on. Rather than a monolithic expansion... States followed diverse trajectories, likely driven by local, that's a point I made earlier, social, political and economic conditions, producing a multifaceted array of control strategies. So she talks about there are states that are high prison, high probation. She calls them uh, states that fall under a, an approach of punitive control. They have low probation, low imprisonment, which is sparing control, you have high probation, low imprisonment, which is managerial control, and you have high imprisonment, low probation, which is incapacitative control. So she has a kind of four-way taxonomy and plots the 50 states in that way to help us understand the differences. So if you want a full account of the carceral state, you need to understand each of the various mass punishments. Okay, that's enough for the numbers. I'm now going to switch hastily into the lived experience and I'm going to give you a two minute summary of the ethnographies that I forgot uh, to prepare. So I've been uh, very much influenced and inspired by a whole bunch of uh, mostly uh, British and American ethnographers of supervision and rehabilitation um, and to some extent there are some nice overlaps here between uh, ethno ethnographies of the prison or particularly ethnographies of rehabilitative processes in prisons and progression processes, so release, uh, progression towards release, and then people who study supervision in the community. And what they, um, what they tend to reveal, although it's complicated and different in different places in relation to different forms of supervision, um, but what they tend to reveal is that rehabilitation recast under the guise of risk produces uh, some particularly, particularly difficult effects for the subjects of those practices. Um, ben Crew, in the context of imprisonment, talks about the move towards soft power, which is where he develops his concepts of depth, weight and tightness. So 
how deeply imprisoned you are is how far you are from life outside. Um, how heavy it is, how, how heavily the burdens of imprisonment bear down upon you. And tightness is the extent to which you are um, constrained. He, I don't think he would use the word manipulated, but I think I would. By those practices in order to perform a version of yourself which demonstrates that your risk is reducing and that it's safe to release you. So there's a kind of psychological form of control that's being applied um, as people progress through risk-based forms of rehabilitation towards release and then in the community on supervision, subject to recall or breach if it's a community sentence, the same or, or similar dynamics are in play. So we can think about the depth of a community sentence or a a supervisory experience, not in terms of how far you are from being out in the community, because you are in the community, but rather how far from normal life are you? How far from the the ordinary freedoms of the citizen are you as a supervisee? And I'll I'll give you an example in a moment of a supervisee who's a very long way from normal life, even although he's free, Uh, free in a physical sense. Secondly, how heavy are the burdens of supervision bearing down upon you? And thirdly, how tightly are you controlled by the associated practices? Okay, so the same can be applied. And people like Alexandra Cox, uh, she's looked at that in relation to young people's experiences of uh, the correctional system in, uh, in a North American state. Uh, Leon Degard looked at it in relation to uh, the release um, and supervision of people convicted of sexual offences. Ruben Miller has looked at it in relation to uh, principally African-American men in North America, particularly in Chicago. Robert Wirth looks at it in relation to parolees in California. So there's a succession of really good ethnographic work now on this stuff. And so we didn't... This is part of a European project that I led for four years between 2012 and 2016. We wanted to try to examine supervision comparatively... Um, and one of our working groups was concerned with the experience of supervision and we were trying, with hardly any money, to figure out a way to begin to experiment with exploring the lived experience. And we split into two mini-projects. One piloted the development of something called the Eurobarometer, which is a survey instrument, essentially, that we then used to examine um, people's uh, experiences in, in eight different European countries. And the other group um, was called Supervisible. And we developed this uh, photo, uh, kind of photo uh, ethnography, visual methods approach, where in three countries, in England, Germany, and Scotland, uh, we worked with uh, about a dozen people in each country, um, subject to different forms of supervision, and we gave them a simple challenge, which was take some photographs that represent or convey aspects of your experience of being supervised and then we'll get back together, we'll look at the pictures pick the ones that you think are most evocative of of what you've experienced Um, maybe caption them if you like and then let's discuss them in a group so it's a kind of mixture of focus group methodology and visual methods Um, and there's a lot of interesting dialogue in the focus groups where the photographer and the audience of the image debate its meaning Um, And so the pictures are data in this method, but the discussion of the pictures is also data. Um, And we analysed it uh, across the five countries and found surprisingly high degrees of similarity across three sites with very different populations from uh, 
uh, men released to halfway houses in Germany and women in a probation centre in England uh, and people subject to community payback orders in Scotland. These were the five recurring themes. So the first uh, and probably the most common theme was a constraint. There were lots of visual metaphors of constraint. Um, this is a German picture by somebody who, whose pseudonym is Vivaldi. Um, and I don't know what it conveys to you, but for, for him, he's trying to communicate the extent to which he feels inv- infantilised. He calls this Lady Justice. And he's the child who's being dragged along by the hand, uh, not free to choose where it goes. Um, uh, this is from somebody whose pseudonym is Messiah Ten in Scotland, and it's a woman. You can't see it; it's so small, but it's a woman walking her dog. So you know how in the in the in the extract I'm talking about the invisible collar and will she hold the leash lightly? Straight from his account of what this image is about. Initially, he says, uh, "Yeah, well, she's the supervisor and I'm the dog," and everybody in the group murmurs their agreement. I found that a really shocking moment in fieldwork. But then he said. And she's holding the lead quite lightly, and the dog looks happy. So there was a, an interesting qualification of what form of constraint or power is being exercised here. Something dehumanising, but also maybe paternalistic, or at least not brutal, um, in the sense that holding the, the lead differently might be. It's not the first time I've heard that metaphor. It's also in Alexandra Cox's ethnography, um, in a, in a, again, in a very different country with a very different population. So images of constraint, images of time lost or suspended, um, images of waste being treated like waste or processed as waste, um, images of judgment, uh, and uh, the the, the positive one, images of growth and development. Um, Actually, I say the positive one, but Almost all of these, with the exception of judgment, are kind of ambivalent or uh, are literally ambivalent. They point in different directions. So sometimes constraint can be welcome. We all like to be held at times and need to be. Uh, time suspended can also be time interrupted in a, in a, in a way which is welcome. Uh, waste, you would think, is only negative, but some people talked about getting rid of their shit through processes of supervision so you know dealing with stuff in their life that they wanted to flush away um, growth is painful even if it's also recognised as desirable and welcome judgement was the one which was universally negative in its connotation and I'm going to focus on that uh, next I think if, if the next slide is the one that I expect it to be and it is so not content with pictures, um, we took these. Uh, we took a dozen of these images into songwriting workshops. This we only did in Glasgow, with a Scottish group of people subject to supervision, supervisors, academics, and obviously musicians to support the the songwriting process. So we have professional musicians co-writing with those who have uh, some kind of lived experience. Um, we had a radio producer there to make a um, a, a podcast about it. I was there as a, as a researcher and as a participant, um, although my role changed. The, the workshop was oversubscribed, and I had to pretend to be a musician and co-write a song, <coughs> which uh, I'm not going to share the song with you uh, musically, but I will show you the lyrics in a moment. So the way these workshops run is that they start with a performance, which is important. It sets a tone of openness and vulnerability and also gives people 
a sense of what might be possible. That's the you know that's what good musicians are able to convey in their performance. We use the pictures as stimuli. We go through the song a range of sort of songwriting exercises and activities. We co-write, record, and play back the songs. This takes place over the course of two days. So I spend most of the two days with TJ, and TJ and I write the song Blank Face together, which you can hear, not thankfully with me singing it, but re-recorded by one of the professional musicians for the purposes of public sharing. Um, and these are, these are the lyrics that, that TJ essentially uh, generated with a little bit of help from me, but they were uh, stimulated by four images. And there's a reason why one is missing. So there's the clock at zero hours. There's the sliding doors of what he took to be a prison, although it's actually a Dutch probation office. There's uh, two shadows cast from a children's uh, climbing frame, which looks a bit like a spider's web with two creatures or shadows caught within it. And the fourth image is uh, a Dutch probation officer who's looking across a table at an off-camera supervisee uh, with a very sort of blank face. And out of those four images, he immediately conjures a narrative and says, well, I recognise that face. I've seen that a million times. Um, and I know what it gets back in return. Another blank face. That relationship's never going to work. This guy is going to be recalled to custody. That's what happens in verse 2. And we're going to go around this circle again and again. So the lyrics, uh, if I just sort of... The font's quite small, so I'll read you through. He says, The clock spins. Zero hour begins. This is the end. The end again. Here sits blank face, and she spins my tail. I've stopped listening. Now that I know that I'll fail. And then the, the refrain, tick by tick and line by line, thread by thread, now you weave mine. A web of shadows, a silk-spun tomb, a windowless room windowless room. Sliding doors open and they welcome me in. This is the place, the place we pay for sin. These four seasons they reflect in glass, trapped in a jar here where the time will not pass. And then the refrain and then one day ending, a new day begins. Tick says he'll do it again and again and again. You see what you want, but I know it's not real. Anyone out there who can feel what I feel. Now, TJ is a life-licensed supervisee, so he has served the custodial part of a life sentence. He's completed the punishment part. He's been released by the parole board, and he's been out for uh, about 15 years. Um, and over the course of those 15 years, he's had several social workers and remains subject to post-release license, as he will for life. So he's in a very extreme form of supervision, which is... Um, Lifelong, as life license implies. Oh, what did I do? So, in a paper I published in Punishment and Society about this time last year, I, I, I analysed TJ's experiences as refracted through the song and through pictures because he was also part of the, the photography project and, and took amazing photographs. And I just played around with the idea of the panopticon. And I know, this is, this is Oxford, so somebody's going to say something about the maloptican being an unconscionable splice of Greek and Latin. <laughs> and the reason I've done that is that if you go all Greek, it's the cacopticon. <laughs> and the cacopticon in Scotland sounds extremely rude. So, and maloptican sounds a bit more like panopticon. So I, I'm 
it's a playful idea in one respect and a deadly serious one in another. Um, and what, what I'm trying to get at with this concept is it's not, with supervision, it's not about an architecture, a disciplinary architecture, uh, which leads to a, an internalisation of, uh, of social control. Rather, it's uh, a, a series of mechanisms and practices that generate a certain form of degradation. What's being dispersed, I think, is discipline. It's not discipline so much as degradation. There's both, of course. So in the maloptican, you're not hypervisible or supervisible. You are invisible, at least as you recognise yourself. You're seen badly by the system. That's linked to the idea of individualization that I started with. And you're created as a certain kind of object, or you're objectified in a certain way, rather than engaged with as a human subject. That's what the blank face does. It doesn't see you. It sees something else. That judgment that it makes is loaded. Uh, it sees you as bad. Um, so you're misrecognized, objectified, and degraded. Um, and that's a kind of moral and civic degradation um, and then it projects your badness um, uh, reifying that, that uh, negative degraded status and projecting it socially with real material and symbolic effects so exclusions um, bans uh, limitations on your rights and freedoms the kind of jobs you can do, the kind of places you can go the kind of people you can see there's lots of different possibilities that are configured differently for different people under different sorts of supervision. And of course, if you struggle against this in that web that TJ writes about in the chorus, the spider's web, he said, uh, as we were writing that, he said, uh, the thing about criminal justice, Fergus, is that the more you struggle, the more tightly contained you become. And that's, that's what happens in a spider's web. You know, the, the fly that's caught in the trap struggles and binds itself more. And in, in a similar fashion here, if you struggle against this system's construction of you, that's evidence that it's seeing you rightly as a problem, and so the process is kind of amplified. Now, I wrote all that in a very depressing paper, uh, which was published in Punishment and Society, and then I wrote the book and I came back to the chapter where I was planning to uh, go through that again and I uh, remembered at that stage, and this is a, an honest confession of a poor researcher, that I'd written two songs in that workshop, and the second one had been written very hastily with another person subject to post-release supervision called John. So I thought, I'd, why haven't I paid attention to that song in my thinking about these processes? Um, and part of the answer is I don't like the song that much. I'm just being honest about what sometimes happens here. But here's the song. Oh, sorry. That's what I've just said. TJ's experience suggests a dispersal of control uh, as much as or more than discipline, distortion, degradation, and then ultimately, crucially, disqualification. I'll come back to that later. Uh, but here's John's song. Now, John's uh, sentence was 12 years, and he was released at six. That's the earliest possible release point in the Scottish system. And he's about four years through the six, maybe four and a half now. Uh, and John's been involved with the charity through which we run these workshops for a while uh, and I know him quite well and he was late to the workshop and came in and we, we kind of had to throw out something really quick and this is what happened so he looked at the pictures 
Um, and I, I think from memory he took that picture that Vivaldi provided of the woman with the child and saw it completely differently from what Vivaldi meant uh, and from, I think, how TJ would interpret it and said, well, there's a helping hand. There's somebody looking after a child, keeping the child safe. And he thought about that in relation to his own experience of being supervised and he, he this, the structure of this song, John's a kind of country music fan, that's the way the music sounds, but it also has a kind of slightly cheesy quality, if you know what I mean by that. That's a very technical music term. Um, so there's a past, present, future, and then there's a kind of message. So, was going down a rocky road, no one to help me on my way. I wish I'd had you by my side. Stop these feelings deep inside. So he's saying, I wish I'd been supervised earlier. Um, and then the chorus, hold my hand and let me go. The things I know I can't unknow, let me go, please hold my hand. It's time to fly. I know I can. So, ambivalence. He's, he wants to be free. He doesn't want to require supervision, but he wants the reassurance and security that supervision can provide, and he wishes that he had had it when he was younger, and he maybe wouldn't have been in the position that he finds himself. The, the, the current verse, Now I have you by my side, uh, making sure I do no wrong. I'm glad that you are in my life, though it's only for so long. That's important. And then the future, time to move on in my life. I'll take the next steps on my own. I'll take you with me in my heart. That way I'll never be alone. So it's, it is pretty cheesy. Um, but it conveys something really important. And I, if I think about that in relation to the Maloptical, John tells us something about how supervision might not always be or necessarily be Maloptical. So for him, being supervised is legitimate. He recognises that he deserves to be supervised. It's part of his 12-year punishment, which he thinks is a fair sentence for a serious offence or crime that he committed. So he's bought into this uh, as part of earning a second chance. It's helpful. His supervisor and him have a decent relationship. They don't always agree. Uh, He does find supervision intrusive, particularly in the way that it messes with his... uh, the way that he would choose to manage his family life. Um, his supervisor engages with that in certain ways, which he finds tiresome. But more generally, he finds the supervisor helpful, even as his need for supervision fades over the course of time. And this is crucial. For him, it's temporary. This is a finite, a time-limited experience, which is connected to the promise of freedom. Um, so for John freedom's coming but for TJ it's not okay so we're nearly there Um, I'm doing okay for time for once in my life so at the end of the book uh, there are two endings of the short story so in the short story Joe meets Pauline Pauline's an old fashioned sort of world weary probation officer who is uh, disgruntled at the managerialization of her work, uh, personified by Norm, who's her her supervisor, who's a kind of young, grasping managerialist aiming for a career in what is a privatised probation system. Um, 
So there, there's a struggle between them over what Joe's supervision is or should be about, um, and, and indeed a, a more general struggle about what supervision is. Um, Joe, Pauline eventually uh, connects Joe with a, a group uh, called the Conviction Collective. That's a Durkheimian joke for the sociologist in the room, but hey, no sociologist in the room. The Conviction Collective is a collective of people who have convictions, um, criminal convictions, and uh, political and moral convictions and they are uh, mobilising collectively to support one another and to campaign for change in the penal system uh, and Joe is a, a, a middle class man who is a former accountant um, who's had a bit of a midlife crisis so he brings his professional skills to bear in the development of that group and in the happy ending Joe, Pauline, Norm who has been reformed uh, and rehabilitated in this process and Petra who's the rock on which the Conviction Collective is founded are going off to the Parliament to give evidence to the Justice Committee about uh, a new pilot initiative that they've been uh, pursuing which is, is remaking uh, supervision in a different form so that's the happy ending uh, the terrifying dystopian ending uh, Pauline's been sacked and replaced by uh, technology um, Joe's wearing a tag. Norm is supervising 400 people on a screen continuously. Uh, not Joe has to report to the office whenever his tag tells him to. So it's a kind of it's it triggers an alert that tells him to come to the office. When he gets there, he goes in a booth, which is part virtual reality gaming center, uh, part coffin, part confessional. Um, and he is greeted by a, a virtual probation officer who counsels him and then uh, he's also counselled by himself so an avatar of his future self, law-abiding Joe comes in at the end and, and uh, says a few words to motivate him and encourage him and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty bleak however, it's not as bleak as a genuine proposal published in a recent criminology journal which um, Mike Nellis put me on to um, a paper by Bagarich and colleagues which advocates as a solution to mass incarceration, technological incarceration, in which the tag um, has multiple functions. But as well as wearing the tag, you have to wear a body harness at all times which has two cameras. One looks at your face and monitors your emotional states and one looks out to see what's happening to the people that you're affecting. Um, and the data from these devices is going off to a big data centre where it's being processed uh, um, through whatever algorithms. Um, and if it, uh, if it all lines up in such a way as to suggest that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, uh, the tag administers a taser shock and you are disabled until the police arrive to scoop you up and deal with it. And that's how we're going to get 80% of people out of American jails. That's a serious proposal in a peer-reviewed journal. And it, I, I couldn't believe when Mike sent it to me just after the book was published that somebody had proposed something worse than my worst imaginings. <laughs> so it just shows that I, I wasn't pessimistic enough. So it also kind of adds weight to the importance of how, how do we as criminologists contribute to a public dialogue about choosing between these futures? Um, and I, uh, I, th I think that creativity and imagination has a big part to play here. Pat Carlin, in her uh, work on imaginary penality, 
is, is mostly talking about how we create fictions that provide sort of fig leaves over the embarrassment that is our penal system. Uh, rehabilitation is one that she often likes to focus on. Um, she regards rehabilitation as uh, a, a fig leaf that conceals the complete failure of the penal system to promote reintegration in a kind of late modern neoliberal society. Um, and she, she argues that those kind of imaginaries restrain or disable, critique and limit our capacity to imagine something better. But she also says that the same knowledges that are incorporated into those imaginaries have resources that might help us to, to give birth to new ideas um, for democratic and socially enhancing responses to crime and security threats. So the, the imaginary that the book is, has in mind is the imaginary of probation as benign diversion when in fact I'm arguing on the basis of the evidence that it's, a, it's principally about net widening in the jurisdictions that I examine. Um, so we have to kind of break from this assumption that more probation is a good thing. That's, that's, that's a kind of central and simple message of the book. That's the imaginary we have to disrupt. And then how? There's some work in relation to counter-visual criminology at the moment. Uh, Judah Shett, uh, Michelle Brown, Eamon Carabine, uh, they're, they're, uh, Brown and Carabine edited the Routledge International Handbook of Visual Criminology in which Judah Shett and others have chapters which engage with this idea. Essentially, it's about unseeing or seeing through common misrepresentations of crime and punishment. And I think supervisible, we didn't know it at the time because we hadn't read those sources, we didn't know counter-visual criminology existed, but I think we were doing it by trying to find other ways to represent these experiences. Not just visually, actually, but also auditory forms through the songs. And I've argued in the book that it's not just about the visual, but actually about a, a sensory criminology that helps us to feel and be affected by the issues. Um, Distant Voices is another current project of mine with many colleagues, a big uh, multi-institutional, uh, multi-partner project which is using similar methods to explore reintegration after punishment. And again, I think it, we can think of it as trying to develop a kind of sensory criminology. And rather than talk about it, I wanted to give you a very quick example of it. Now this is a a little film. This is a world premiere, in fact. And this is not. The, this is the the. I got the final edit about an hour ago, and I didn't have the heart to try and get it onto this system because uh, it's complicated enough to deal with all this technology. Um, so this is almost exactly as it as it is when it will be released next week. And it's it's a a very short film, a five minute film about the launch event for the book. And it, I'll be. I'll be honest about it, it's partly a promotional film, um, but it's also, I asked the, the filmmaker, who's an amazingly talented guy, as you'll see in a moment, to try and capture the atmosphere and a little bit of audience reaction so that we could use this as a sort of illustration of what a public criminology which is engaging uh, creatively with the senses um, and with affect as well as intellect might sometimes look like. Um, but it won't work for everybody and it won't be the right way to do this in every context. It's just one example. So I'm going to try and make it play now. Oh, oh that's not going to work. I need to go forward. Oh, back, back. Right. Very hard to control this mouse. 
through the medium of storytelling and song, we're going to try to render an invisible part of the, the prison system, the penal system, I should say, more imaginable. That's the purpose. Too many people in prison in Scotland and in lots of places around the world. The numbers of people that are subject to supervision dwarf the numbers in prison, so there are uh, less than 8,000 people in prison in Scotland today and more than 20,000 being supervised in the community. In England, uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, supervised in the community. In Europe, millions. In America, millions. I knew nothing about the, the, the growth in supervision orders. And it's something that passed me by. The idea that someone's home and their sanctuary becomes a prison for them was something very, very new to me. I hadn't considered it at all as, a, as an idea. Um, and that definitely is something that stuck with me through the whole thing. Maybe I was lazy for granted It's all a little hazy Just when the seeds are planted Instinctively, he lifted his hand to his neck But no one can loosen an invisible collar At least it was not a noose Joe swallowed uncomfortably Noticing the dryness of his mouth And the churning in his gut He was not condemned to hang he was condemned to be left hanging. Joe wondered what Pauline would be like. organizations um, so much is you, you frame everything in terms of organizational objectives, targets, budgets, workloads and what came across so powerfully this, uh, this evening was like, the voice and the impact on the individuals, their lives and um, we need to remember that when, when we're planning policies and developing practice. The sums are called depth, weight, tightness and suspension which are ways in which we can think about how being supervised or being imprisoned affects us and this idea of questioning things about yourself all the time or going somewhere regularly to question things about yourself and um, what that might do to you. Brilliant. I was really moved at the end actually and I don't go to many academic events and feel moved so that was a bit of a first. I had a bit of a tear in my eye at the end actually and I thought that you know it was so well done that it, and it would be hugely memorable. The book is about supervision because I don't think we know how to debate that issue. I don't think we know how to discuss and, and have a meaningful conversation about supervisory forms of punishment precisely because I don't think we know what they entail or what they are as a, as a lived experience. The sense of a new energy around academic work and particularly around the work for justice, wherever that takes people, and that there are 
I think forms emerging at this moment in time at the University of Glasgow and in Scotland which have real potential to make something move and, and in ways which are gently revolutionary. Sandy as well, I've got a clap at his, at his world premiere, he'll be very happy. Um, so, the, the, the final part of the book, the, the last chapter where, as I said at the beginning, it becomes uh, more about the principles that we might think about, suggests that, uh, in, in many respects, similarly to the way that we, we, ha- we do and have thought about punishment more broadly, we have to uh, be parsimonious in relation to scaling down mass supervision and with it mass penal control. We need to think much harder about proportionality in this context, clarifying and circumscribing uh, the legitimate purposes and intrusions of supervision, and and then productiveness. If we get those two somewhere right, right, then we can start thinking about how we configure the practices in ways which are legitimate, helpful, um, constructive, rather than maloptical. I wrote all that, and then, of course... As soon as the book goes off to the publisher, you have other thoughts. And I went to Judith Butler's Gifford lectures at Glasgow University, and then I read Didier Fassan's The Will to Punish, and then I taught a class based on the book to my undergraduate sociology students. And uh, so there's another book chapter coming out in a collection by Pat Carlin, which in which I argue with myself <laughs> over whether I was sufficiently radical and whether actually liberal principles are sufficient to the challenge of containing or restraining mass. Supervision. Um, I'll end there just by saying the book's out. Um, the the EP of songs that was Joe that you saw uh, performing with our friends. Uh, their uh, EP system hold is coming out in March, and the four songs, as she said, uh, Ben Cruz very excited about that. Depth, weight, tightness, and suspension, which is the one that uh, I've added in relation to um, supervision specifically. That'll be out then. Um, although, if you're if you're diligent enough to read the book, there's a key that unlocks the EP now. And so it's it's a test. Um, I can't tell you what that is. I just you have to read the whole thing. And if you get if you get to the end, you'll find the key. So um, thank you very much for listening.